Okay, uh, this is the second lecture on Celtic uh, saints and the origins of Celtic spirituality. <coughs> Last time we talked about the uh, how Celtic church was founded by missionaries coming out of the monastic movement in Gaul and the influence of the monastic literature such as Life of Anthony, the writings of John Cassian, and the personal contacts coming from Lorenz, uh, uh, such as St. Patrick and, and Auxerre, St. Germanus, and also uh, the one of the only theological works to come out of this period is uh, 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 St. Faustus, who was the abbot of Lorraine and who was the son of uh, Vortigern. I don't know if you're up on your Arthurian history, but Vortigern's son was a was a uh, monk and ultimately became the bishop of Riaz and wrote a very good uh, work on soteriology contrasting the royal road of the church with the two errors of Pelagianism and predestinationism. Unfortunately, it's not available in English. But uh, the fact that he wrote that in uh, very elegant Latin kind of based on the models of Cicero uh, shows that we usually think of, you know, people at that time, the movies, you know, it's all kind of like these kind of barbarian warriors, and they're all very ignorant and rough and tough, and all this. but uh, but here, you know, at this at this time, uh, these are very educated people. They're they're scholars and uh, really in the first rank, and church fathers. We talked about how this was transported over into Britain through the work of Saint Patrick, who went into Northern Ireland, and uh, Saint Ninian into Scotland, Southern Scotland here. And then through the, the work of the Celtic, mon I mean, uh, uh, Welsh monasteries in, in uh, southern Wales, starting with St. Iltud, St. Caddoch, and St. Gild Gildas the Wise, who was the one who wrote on the destruction of Britain, which uh, is a uh, historic, one of the only kind of historical works. One, one of the things uh, I wanted to talk about was the problem of sources. For the fourth century writers, that some people uh, that we just mentioned in a way. Uh, so we have excellent, we have the, the writings of St. Faustus, we have writings of John Cassian, we even have um, one, the confession and a few things from St. Patrick. But, um, and then we have, a few, you know, some contemp contemporary writings for these er uh, kind of writings about contemporary lives recording uh, these the lives of these people. But when we get up into the um, Fifth and sixth century, what happens is there's there's a lot less available. We have uh, the lives of, of the Welsh saints are mostly recorded in, in uh, works that were written in the time of the Normans, so 11 and 1200s. So there's the problem that the uh, saints' lives are written much later than the people that they record. Uh, it's not so bad in Ireland. Uh, we have lives there tend to be. Uh, a little later than the life of the saint, but not not much later. And but the compilations that we have now really come from like the 13, 14, 1500s, uh, with some exceptions. Uh, the life of Saint Columba, who we're going to talk about today, was that's uh, written about a hundred years after his death. The uh, life of Saint Columbanus, who went to France, was written by his disciple almost immediately after his death. So this is a would be more like the type of saints' lives that we're used to in the East of a life written by an eyewitness. 
but that's uh, that's not uh, always the case. So a lot of the lives are, are uh, later. The uh, Ireland had the advantage of, of a continuous intellectual culture really up till you know the time of the Vikings. So uh, there's a lot of material in both Latin and in, in Gaelic there. So that's actually uh, studying Ireland is easier than some places. Uh, Wales. The pr problem that the lives being late are also very contradictory. So there's uh, a lot of question marks. So that's why when you, uh, depending on which book you're looking at, you can find all different dates for the same people. And it's very uh, disturbing when you're trying to figure out what's going on. The other uh, sources we have, we don't really have a lot of writings by these saints, except in the early period. There's in Columbanus, uh, he traveled down into Gaul and, and Italy, and so there are some letters by him. He was involved in the uh, historian controversy a little bit. The others, we have a, a St. Columba, there's a couple of hymns uh, ascribed to him, but it's not clear whether the uh, Altus Prosator, it's his uh, story about the creation, uh, I mean a, po a poem about the creation. But there's not a lot in terms of theological writings by these saints and also um, the lives, the, the records concerning them, there's not a, a lot of historical material, although uh, there are some Irish annals, but the Irish annals, their compilation dates are from like the 1400s and 1600s, but of course they're based on older material. So in this case, old material, I mean the late Late material doesn't necessarily mean we don't know. I mean, some there are some legends, but uh, but it just means it's all more confusing to work with. In uh, in modern times, kind of the sort of classic is uh, John Ryan's Irish monasticism origins and early development. I think written in the 30s. That's considered sort of a base book to start out with. And then uh, among the many many uh, modern books. Uh, one that's pretty respected is uh, the Celtic Churches by John McNeil, and then Ireland at the time of the, um, let's see, I think it's Celtic Lands in the Age of the Saints by Nora Chadwick is also very respected. So those are the three main, uh, I say, sort of scholarly sources that you could find. Unfortunately, I think they are all out of print, so they have to buy them used. But I could. Uh, show you some other things after. But there's an awful lot of new books and all, all the various degrees of seriousness and of information. Okay, I wanted to go back to where we were. Uh, we were talking about the, how the Celtic Church um, kind of developed great schools as a kind of taking two things in, in Wales, continuing sort of the Roman uh, schools here in, at the monasteries, and then in Ireland, continuing the Bardic and uh, Druidical schools, but becoming that since the monasteries stepped into that role and created that the monasteries themselves were schools for thousands of, of young people who would come and study and then just be there till their ordination. And the major schools we mentioned was uh, Clonard. Uh, well, in since uh, Saint Ninian's uh, foundation in Scotland, Whithorn. That was known as the Great Monastery and was a, a source of education for a, a number of the people in Ireland and Scotland. 
And um, then over here, so like Finian of, of Moville came in, from Ireland and he studied at, uh, at Whithorn for many years and was a, a teacher there. And then later went back to Ireland and founded a school at Moville, which according to uh, the life of St. Columba, that he studied at, at Moville under St. Finian. Now, this is a, there's another St. Finian who, who was an Irish uh, monk who studied with St. Caddock over in Wales and founded the monastery of Clannard, <coughs> which was also, was one of the biggest of the monasteries and, and where St. Columba is also uh, said to have studied. And so part of the kind of ambiguity here is there's people who think well, the lives seem to say that he studied at both. Some say, well, that's really, he, he only studied up at Moville. Some say, well, he only studied down in Clonard. And now there's uh, another, uh, David Dumville, I think, uh, he, uh, I think he says that, well, really both Finians are the same person, actually. <laughs> but, so, um, you know, depending on who you're reading, you could get a totally different picture. So is you know Saint Columba being educated in the tradition of Saint Ninian, or is he being educated in the tradition of the Welsh, or did he go to both schools and kind of combine the two? And that's, of course, that's what the lives say. So we would kind of go with that. But um, but it it does I mean you know when you're uh, the different modern authors could take very different takes on these things. Anyway, I wonder, with Clonard, this was um, the school Saint Finian of Clonard who lived in the early 500s, his school, he was kind of, um, they could say, the kind of the teacher of the 12 apostles of Ireland. So kind of the 12 most famous saints are, are connected to St. Finian uh, somehow, whether they all were necessarily students there, but uh, but a lot of them were. And I just, do we have a, a marker or something? Is there, yeah, just um, write down some names. But one of the... Uh, this period of the 500s, uh, Finian died. This is the time of the uh, the Emperor Justinian, and in the so we're now yeah, in between the uh, fourth and fifth council. But one of the things that happened to Justinian's reign was the great uh, plague. It was a, probably the bubonic plague that some estimate killed about a quarter of the people uh, living in the Roman Empire, and probably had something to do with the decline afterwards. But uh, St. Finian died in that plague. But his disciples, he was um, influenced by Gildas in wanting to promote monasticism as an independent uh, institution separate from the bishops, whereas the earlier monasteries were founded as diocesan monasteries. Uh, St. Finian's students kind of lived, were instead of being bishops, they were primarily abbots. There, there were uh, hermits and monastics who then founded monasteries. So we have a kind of independent monasteries m- more similar to what we have in the East. So with, with St. Finian, in a sense, is uh, actually sort of maturing of the monastic movement in Ireland. From here, we have, uh, we'll talk about Columkill or Columba. Um, there's uh, St. Kenneth with him. Saint Comgol, and um, another person I want to mention first probably is Brendan, the voyager. But well, I'll be able to do him after. Let's let's start with Saint Columba, who's probably the most famous. He was the son of a prince, 
in uh, from Northern Ireland. He was of early age given to foster care with a priest, as many many of the saints were uh, raised for their to be in the church, and this was kind of following uh, Irish custom of raising them to a profession. And studied with uh, Finian of Moville, and then with Finian of Clonard, and then after the uh, plague, at the time of the plague, he went up to back to his home and founded a monastery at Derry and and actually founded several monasteries in Ireland. In the later life, there's uh, three major lives of of Columba. The oldest by his uh, successor at at Iona Island is 100 years after. Then there's the Irish life, which is very good, but still maybe another 100 years after that. And then there's a life written in about the 1500s that records... Um, some things that are not so sh- such are kind of doubtful, but one of the things that happens is there's a battle uh, between Columbus family and the family of the high king. And the 1500s uh, book says that well, this is because Saint Columba had copied one of Finian of Moville's uh, documents without permission, and the king had ruled against Columba, and so there was a big battle and. Columba, uh, it was Columba's fault that all these people were killed, and so he had to leave uh, Ireland to go to Scotland to save as many souls as he had lost in the battle. But um, this is not this explanation is not found in the earlier writings. Um, it does seem, though, that that Finian of Moville did have a copy of the Vulgate, and before this, was the, they were all using the Old Latin. But uh, so there may have been something to the story. But the other thing is that. Uh, the son of the king of Connaught was under uh, Columba's protection uh, as, as an abbot, and the uh, high king had him murdered. <laughs> and so that is that thought by historians to be more likely why the battle was fought, because the king of Connaught came in on the side of the Columbus family against uh, the high king. And after the battle, he did go up to, but only several years later, he traveled up to Scotland. Now in Scotland, what was happening was the uh, the Scots had been the Scots were Northern Irish people who had settled along the west coast, and they were in kind of competition with the Picts over here. And for a while, they were kind of had the upper hand, but then they lost a battle, and the uh, Picts were now pressing on the Scots to kind of drive them the, the West Scots to drive them out. So Columba goes up. And he uh, founds a monastery at Iona Island, and then travels over to the uh, to the Pictish king, who is now the the high king over Scotland, and, and kind of in a sense the the ruler. He has to go and get permission for his uh, monastery. And it's very interesting. At the same time, um, as Saint Columba is going, there's a number of uh, Irish saints who are going over to Scotland to talk to the Picts and so when uh, Columba goes over he has St. Kenneth with him who uh, had studied in Wales but had also gone to Clonard uh, St. Comgall who had been at Clonard but had founded the school at Bangor and a very strict uh, lived a very strict monastic life there uh, very strict asceticism and uh, Comgall came over and he apparently brought one of his disciples named Malawag and they all traveled up to uh, near Inverness to get permission from the Pictish king to uh, 
set up monasteries and actually to do ap- you know kind of apostolic work in Pict land. It also apparently uh, was perhaps to preserve the, the situation of the Christian settlers, Irish settlers in, in Western Scotland. But the um, the embassy was resisted by the Druids, but uh, Columba, through uh, miracles, overcomes the power of the Druids and convinces the king that he should, you know, uh, be friends with Columba. And so, as a result, we never hear that the king converts, but that the people there. Um, there starts being Christian missions there, not not under Columba himself, who spends his time mostly back here in the West, but with the um, Saint Kenneth, Saint Malawag, especially our um, mentioned in earlier. There were two different Celtic languages, uh, the P Celts and the Q Celts, and the uh, which the the Pictish Irish Picts, and so Saint Kenneth and Saint Malawag are Pictish speakers and that they were the ones who did most of the missionary work over here in the east. And I left off, I think, with St. Malawag uh, had founded a monastery in the 500s up in uh, eastern Scotland and had a a pillar where he uh, prayed on top of a a large rock at one of the uh, hill forts. So some things that you think of as a kind of a Eastern phenomena, you know, it's not like Simon the Stylite is here taking place in Scotland in the 500s. The other uh, person I wanted to mention now is is St. Brenton, who comes from down in southern southern Ireland. He studied with, visited with Enda up here. Actually, he studied under uh, Bishop Irk, who was a disciple of uh, Patrick. But then and perhaps uh, it's, it's connected to, to Clonard in some way whether he may have stayed there we don't know but he but he visits um, Columba up here along with some of these other people and the his life includes uh, you know and, and his life is pretty famous because it includes all these these travels by ship and people generally consider them all uh, sort of fairy tales and then perhaps wonder whether uh, he may have tra- discovered America first, you know, because he goes and he visits all these islands. And so the, the attention to Brendan is is often connected to, in terms of that sort of transatlantic possibility. But one of the things that we find when we look at uh, up here in the islands along the west and north of Scotland is that there were uh, little monasteries on many of these islands that as far as the, the, in the east, you know, people, the monks generally lived out in the deserts like in Egypt and Palestine because they were wanting to be apart from the world so they could concentrate on prayer. Well, in the British Isles, there's not deserts really. So what they did was they went out into these uh, small islands where there's nobody living and they set up uh, cells or, or monasteries on the islands. And when you read the, his life, I mean, one of the interesting things about it is that he's traveling around kind of in a circuit. And wherever he goes, you know, he's, it seems like he's always meeting other monks living on these islands. And uh, he goes and he has, you know, one feast day at this monastery, and then he travels and goes to another feast day at another monastery. And they, uh, meantime, they're sort of floating about. Uh, so it's not that dissimilar to... Uh, you know, when you're reading the lives of the Palestinian saints, where the uh, during Lent, for example, they would go out into the desert 
and kind of wander around the desert. But, you know, there were all these uh, monasteries out there. So they, you know, had uh, places that could help them, but they were using the solitude as a way of uh, kind of practicing prayer and asceticism. And in the same way, uh, Brendan is doing sort of the same thing. He's using the sea as, 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 his, uh, as his desert, and he has all these other monasteries. And what's interesting is the, uh, later when they get to the Vikings, they find, you know, the Vikings as they're coming along, it, um, they are finding monks settled all the way between Scotland up to Iceland. And so the, uh, the story of St. Brendan is not, is not so improbable because, in fact, obviously lots of, not, not just St. Brendan, but a lot of monks had to make these voyages and were actually uh, settling and keeping in communication with each other through all this area that was otherwise you know, uninhabited at that time. The um, other things I would mention with St. <coughs> Columba is the, um, you know, in, in a way all these lives, they don't have a lot of, <coughs> let's say, uh, a lot of interest in history as such, and they're criticized for that. You know, people think, well, how come the, you know, St. Adam didn't write more about, you know, dates and who was king? And this way, there are some historical tidbits kind of thrown in there. <coughs> but instead, you know, they also say, well, they're all, they're, they kind of call them primitive because they say, well, they're all just full of miracles, you know, which, and uh, so this is, you know, some rational person wouldn't have written all this, but. But obviously, you know, the, the primitive religious mind, you know, is kind of consumed with miracles and not not interested enough in history to tell us anything important. And so uh, there's a tendency to dismiss the uh, lives of saints, especially, I mean, St. Uh, Columbus gets more attention because it does have some historical things in it. But the, uh, <clears throat> particularly the Irish saints, especially in their collections later, have tended to be just left out of a lot of the historical uh, work. But these, what these lives uh, are doing is they're focusing on a, on a, a spiritual and theological reality. Uh, one of the things with uh, a number of them, but particularly in St. Club, I just would like to read you, is this um, phenomenon of, of uh, the vision of God, uh, which we, you know, we kind of think of connected with Gregory Palamas and how he defends you know, the vision of God against Barlam and, and scholastics. But it's, it's interesting that Great Repolimus didn't just make this up. This was part of the Orthodox tradition going back to the early centuries. And, and it's very clear in the, uh, in the life of St. Columba and actually in the life of St. Brendan also. And um, I'll read you a couple of things. But one is the, uh, a liturgy that was held on one, an island near uh, Iona where between uh, St. Uh, Brendan, St. Kenneth, and St. Comgall had come, come to visit uh, St. Columba, along with uh, a St. Cormac, who was the abbot of uh, St. Columba's monastery at Derry, and then who later went off uh, with Columba's help. He got permission to be the apostle to the Orkney Islands. So they are all kind of, so Iona, we think of the seas as all this desolate, but actually the sea is the means of communication. So all these little islands were actually uh, kind of all in contact with each other. And Iona, that way, even though it's out on an island up in the north, it's actually the center of kind of things. Uh, so they all come together and they decide to have the liturgy and they ask St. Columba to perform the Eucharist. Um, okay, and then during the celebration of, of these uh, solemn offices, 
St. Brendan saw, as he told Comgol and Kenneth afterwards, a ball of fire like a comet burning very brightly on the head of Columba while he was standing before the altar and consecrating the holy oblation. And thus it continued burning and rising upwards like a column, so long as he continued to be engaged in the same most sacred mysteries. And so, um, of course, when a person is uh, at the altar, we uh, have the, the, the presence of Christ coming into the gifts. But it's something where there's also just, it's not just from that, but the transformation of the person. And I'll give you um, this one more of these. At another time, when the saint was living at the island of Hinba, the grace of the Holy Spirit was communicated to him abundantly and unspeakably and dwelt with him in a wonderful manner so that for three whole days and as many nights without either eating or drinking he allowed no one to approach him and remain confined in a house which was filled with heavenly brightness yet out of that house through the chinks of the doors and keyholes rays of surpassing brilliancy were seen to issue during the night certain spiritual songs also which had never been heard before he was heard to sing he came to see, as he allowed in the presence of a very few afterwards, many secrets hidden from men since the beginning of the world, fully revealed. Certain very obscure and difficult parts of sacred scripture also were made quite plain and clearer than the light to the eye of his pure heart. Um, there's a other section where he, he um, it's maybe in a different part than what I copied, uh, where he seems to see the whole uh, universe like in a in a drop of water all at once, uh, and this is through the um, the fact that man is able to be in communion with God, and we of course don't uh, because of our sins we are not fully in that communion. But what Saint Columba and the saints uh, here they you know they are living. Uh, the carrying out of this of this goal of human life, which is to be in communion with God, and so they are transformed. And here, like uh, we see later with Saint Seraphim of Sarov, you know, there's this uh, illumination with the divine light, such as Christ on Transfiguration. But a lot of his life, you know, he's uh, in the life. Again, the things that historians dismiss, but he's uh, battling with the demons. So he's battling with the demons who are bringing plagues. He's battling with the demons for the souls of those who are dying. He's involved always in a spiritual warfare. And um, for the secular historian, well, all these things aren't real, so it's all just, you know, kind of fairy tales or something. But, but uh, for the people, for us in the church, we realize that, you know, these are actually the spiritual realities that are central. And that's why, in a sense, uh, you know, the, the Celtic saints are so famous, even though, in one way, I mean, they compared to the other church fathers, they really didn't write hardly anything, and they didn't. Um, you know, kind of, we don't have all kinds of historical documents about them, but what we have is this uh, record of a spiritual warfare and, and the fact that they, uh, you know, were able to carry this out through that. You know, they, they created an impression which actually stays with us to today, and that's why we have thousands of books about <laughs> Celtic saints, even though we know very little about these people. Yes. Um, I, I read the life of St. Columba like you did, and mm -hmm. I, I noted some, some, some notes about some of the descriptions of the, mm -hmm. the glory and the, and the heavenly light that yes. you saw. You, you read some of them, which were excellent. Uh, I have just a couple other you know, uh, uh, descriptions. You know, they, they weren't, weren't using philosophical language. You know, they weren't mm -hmm. saying like this was uncreated or something yeah. like that. But, 
but there were some synonyms that that may you know be you know their attempt to, mm -hmm. to describe the same thing. Um, one of them was the, they referred to unestimable light. Uh -huh. Another one was uh, they called it incomparable uh, radiance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and another one is uh, immeasurable light. Yeah. So uh, another phrase I think is something like the glory of heavenly brightness. Another was uh, uh, golden uh, uh, light descending from the highest heaven. Mm -hmm. uh -huh, that's yeah. yeah. So divine light, heavenly light. So all yeah. of these kind of you know, synonyms that seem you know to be describing the the, the most ultimate reality, yeah. uh, as opposed to something created. Which yeah. It seems like, like these would be uh, hyperbole uh, uh -huh. if, if they were trying to describe something created instead of uncreated. Yes, I think so. And and in the passage I read, it's the, it's his, uh, that he's filled with the Holy Spirit when this comes upon him. So it's not, it's talking about the presence of, of God himself, not the presence of, a, of some kind of created miracle. And this is um, the contrast with the, um, you know, the later medieval where uh, salvation, you know, through the Augustinian theology where salvation is purely juridical and the idea, and actually the, where they come to reject the idea of the vision of God. And so, um, yeah, these these uh, lives, I mean, stand out because the because we have here um, the idea of the ascetical life with the idea of reaching communion with God, and that that becomes absent in later Western writings, and so that's part of their uh, you know their importance in uh, preservation of Orthodox theology in the West. It's a, a little more of the of the history here. The um, Saint Columba sort of gets the church started here. These uh, Pictish saints start doing missionary work over in the eastern part of, um, of Scotland. But in England, there's uh, some missionary work among the Anglo-Saxons, but uh, one of the kings uh, is killed and the sons run, run to Iona Island to be protected from the uh, person who kills their father. And one of them is named Oswald and he... Um, ultimately goes back and becomes king of Northumbria. And when he does, he's, he has become Christian up in Iona and he asks for uh, missionaries to come. And there's uh, one, someone person who's sent, and, but he's very kind of impatient and you know, doesn't get along with the Anglo-Saxons. And so uh, they send for another, and uh, that's St. Aidan, comes down to, to Northumbria. Well, I guess it's down here, sorry. And this is uh, the mission sort of from the Celtic church comes into the Anglo-Saxon area and one of uh, St. Aidan's disciples is uh, St. Cuthbert. And it's interesting, in St. Cuthbert's life, along with uh, the lives of a lot of these other saints, especially St. Uh, Kevin uh, in eastern Scotland too, is the association with animals, they, uh, which you again see like later in the life of St. Seraphim, where when the Christian comes into communion with God, that we there's a sort of restoration of of uh, the life of paradise, so the relationship with the animals is restored, and we have uh, you know the animals uh, with Saint Cuthbert, uh, the uh, otters coming up at night and uh, licking his feet because he's been praying all day, you know, and he's so he's now kneeling, and uh, Saint Columba taking care of the uh, crane and and uh, and also this horse that but the 
uh, St. Kevin, I think the famous story of him praying, uh, praying and then a bird builds its nest and so he waits, you know, he stays praying until the nest, uh, the little bird hatches. But there's a, um, there, it's something that's, that's actually in almost every life. There's some, something to do with animals and a lot of them and the, uh, this sense in which um, part of the communion with God is, is uh, this restoration. And you'll see late in the East with the, the story of uh, St. Jerome and the lion. Or say, there's a say Gerasimus or something, that lion down by the Jordan River. The, uh, so that's something that's very uh, familiar to us because it's actually this, they, they're both expressions of the same reality that uh, existed in the, in the church at this time. Later on, what happens, uh, there's some conflicts down in Northumbria between the English church and the, and the Celtic church. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon church was re- refounded in the 590s by uh, St. Augustine of, of Canterbury, who's not, not the Augustine of Hippo, but who was sent up uh, from Rome. He's actually from a Benedictine community that had taken refuge in Rome uh, due to barbarians. And when he's there, he kind of re, re, re-establishes the church in the Anglo-Saxon lands. What, um, some things had happened, though, in the time while the uh, Anglo-Saxons had overrun things, and that was that there had been some busy people working on calendars. And the most important, it was um, Dionysius Exiguus in the 530s in Rome had developed a new way of figuring out the date of Pascha. And so what happens in, down here, they're you know, develop, adopting this new uh, calendrical system for calculating Rome, up, calculating Pascha. Up here, they're following the old system. And when the two clash, the, uh, the Celtic church was unwilling at first to change their Paschal system to match the one of, uh, that the Roman the missionaries were bringing. And it's interesting that they didn't really realize what was happening. They um, they thought that this was the Romans people thought that this was essentially quadradecimal controversy happening all over again, and that really the Celtic people were following the tradition of Saint John, and that they were following the tradition of Saint Peter. And the whole conflict was kind of waged on that uh, basis. They did never seem to realize that actually they had changed the system. I mean, I don't know how they didn't realize it. They only changed it uh, not very many years before, but but uh, eventually the uh, the Celtic Church gradually adopted the the new system. But uh, in, but in, in the case of the uh, Northumbria, the uh, when the Northumbrian Church decided to go under the Anglo-Saxon the Roman system, the uh, Celtic bishops left at first, and so the Anglo-Saxon Church kind of went from being under Iona to being under the uh, Anglo-Saxon church. Here, um, this is where another historical source comes in. In, the, in Northumbria, in the monasteries, there was a, another uh, scholar whose name was Bede, and he wrote uh, the Ecclesiastical History of Britain, and it focuses mainly on the Anglo-Saxons, but uh, he's writing in, I think, the... Uh, Late 600s, early 700s. So that's actually pretty old. That's his. So his records are among are older than most of the uh, collections of saints' lives that we have today. So he's actually a, an excellent source. 
the I had mentioned St. Columbanus, who uh, had gone out from Bangor. Now, the meanwhile, back because remember everything was sort of being uh, destroyed down here with the fall of the Western Empire. But in 500, uh, King Clovis, the king of the Franks, converts to Christianity. And so you start having the Frankish Christian kingdom developing. And uh, Columbanus comes down and, and gets some help from those kings and goes and does missionary work in Switzerland and then down in, um, well, southern Germany, Switzerland, and, and down into the Lombard kingdom in, in, in Italy. But he's only really the first of many uh, the... Uh, Charlemagne's court becomes, in fact, uh, a, a refuge for Irish scholars because as, as the Frankish kingdom is expanding, meanwhile, the Vikings are coming across the top here and start destroying the monasteries. Uh, so Iona was hit many times uh, and largely destroyed at this period. A lot of the monasteries were. And so many uh, Celtic uh, monks came, came over into, into Gaul and they remember the Celtic church was uh, Celtic monasteries were great centers of scholarship and and they were not just uh, you know not just kind of preserving inf information in, in Gaelic there was a lot of translation into their own language of Gaelic but they also were very interested in Latin and they were Latin scholars and so they when they were came over to Gaul which you would think here Gaul is a place that spoke Latin but in fact uh, with all the uh, Devastation. The Irish scholars had a lot more education than most of the people in Gaul. So the um, the, the schools in in the Frankish kingdom and later in Germany were being staffed with uh, monks coming from these monasteries. And then uh, what happens in a way? Well, there's an interesting thing. The uh, you know the the manuscripts come as the, as the Western Empire is falling. You know, a lot of these manuscripts kind of were only preserved by being taken to Ireland, and so you had all these texts there. And then when they came, and, then, and the Vikings are attacking, they brought a lot of these with them. So you have uh, Irish. We have Irish manuscripts all over in these in these uh, monasteries to here in, in the uh, what would be the Holy Roman Empire, the in um, France, Germany, and Italy. And then. Later on, uh, after the Viking period, when the Cistercian monasteries were established, because that's what, in a sense, there's a kind of break with the Vikings. When the Vikings are driven out, about a thousand, the Cistercian monasteries are brought. Those, uh, in some sense, it's, sometimes it's the same monasteries, that, and this, I mean, excuse me, the same manuscripts that the Irish uh, missionaries brought with them that become the basis of new manuscripts to be brought back to Ireland. Re, you know, restoring the libraries that were lost at the time of, of the Viking invasions. So it's it's interesting that uh, Ireland and uh, and the Western Europe kind of helped each other in that sense as preserving. And I was uh, giving this talk in Russia, and it, it helped occur, you know, kind of occurred to me that, of course, we uh, received Orthodox. Many of us received Orthodoxy in this country because of the. Uh, devastation that happened in Russia and the fact that so many Russian people fled to America and, and Western Europe and uh, now you know sort of going to be able to go back and talk about orthodoxy uh, in Russia afterwards uh, in a sense you have the same kind of cycle where uh, the church by you know by our travels we're able to kind of help those places that are in trouble and then in other ways uh, places that are in trouble are able to help others later on 
I guess that's what I want to say. Uh, do you have any questions about Celtic saints or Celtic uh, monasticism? Yes. Well, uh, so you covered up through maybe the 700s. Is that right? Well, okay. I, actually, I guess I could just uh, mention a few. One of the when I, Charlemagne's court, one of the more famous people is Alcuin, who was a, actually from uh, an Anglo-Saxon, but who studied over in, in uh, Ireland at Clonmacnoise. Uh, St. Kieran's Monastery and then went back to school, the school of York, taught there and then went and became the uh, teacher at the court of, of Charlemagne in the uh, um, about 800 so th- then there are actually um, it keeps going there's a, what's his name the uh, John Scottus Eregina is comes in the, a little later uh, later in the 800s and he, it's interesting he's a scholar not only of uh, of Latin, but uh, he's a sort of expert on Saint Maximus the Confessor. <laughs> kind of surprising if you hear he's living, he's, he's being trained up in Ireland during the time of the Viking invasions. And when he, and, but he is the expert. I mean, he's actually kind of stands way above everyone else in the West. He here he comes comes from Ireland, and he's able to teach theology based on the writings of Saint Maximus in Greek, and. You know, there wasn't really anybody that was studying that. Uh, so he was kind of uh, remarkable that way. Uh, it just shows that you know somehow the uh, the Irish Church uh, quickly developed and preserved this ex- very uh, high standard of, of theological scholarship. Uh, yeah. He also translated uh, Dionysius. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Dionysius the Areopagite also. Um, yeah, it may be. I don't know for sure. Yeah, also, a, a lot of um, the, the Celts themselves, the Celtic saints traveled themselves, but a lot of their, uh, also their disciples who went to study there, who were Anglo-Saxons often, they not only went back to England, but they often uh, went over into Germany to do missionary work in pagan Germany. And so a number of the uh, saints, uh, missionary saints of Germany, were actually students at the uh, Celtic monasteries. So at the time of the Great Schism, how did, how did uh, you know, the, the Celts and, and all react to, to that, that change? And, and yes. Um, well, at that point, you remember, we're already kind of past the Viking Age where the old monasteries have mostly, actually, well, there's a phase I forgot, but I'll, we, have, we have to wrap up, but at the time of the Vikings, the, the monasteries, as they kind of fell into, um, you know, fell from their former greatness, the, there was a movement of hermits called the Chaldees, who were very strict ascetical people who lived out. But then after um, the Norman conquest, you know, essentially all of the Irish, native Irish monasticism was suppressed pretty much. And, they, and what you had was uh, establishment of the Cistercian monasteries throughout Ireland. And they... Of course, they're uh, coming, their sort of mother houses back in, in uh, France. And, the, uh, and of course, the, politically, the Normans are now ruling Ireland. So post, uh, and the Normans were very closely connected to the papacy. And actually in uh, the Norman conquest of England had a sort of similar effect of the Normans. You know, this was right at the time of the development of the uh, papal monarchy. In a sense, the creation of the Roman Catholic Church and the Normans were kind of allied with that and so yeah England and Ireland you know they kind of fell under that domination you know early on 
So it's a kind of a combination of the Viking invasion plus the Norman invasion? Yes, and then, and, and then the influence of Cistercians. Okay. Yeah. Okay, any, any other questions before we wrap up? Okay, well, thank you for your attention. If you 